And now live. Um, so, as I was saying a little while ago, <laughs> each evening we'll have a talk, and I'll, we'll, each of us will give some uh, further orientation, sort of filling out the map of the larger trajectory of practice, as well as giving some uh, specific guidance for practice on, on different aspects of practice. And uh, in terms of listening, uh, my suggestion would be to really listen with your whole presence, stay connected to your bodies, and really just uh, listen for what speaks to you. There'll be a lot that's said, and maybe two or three things particularly uh, resonate. And that would be, that would be very positive. And, and you can, in a way, take those and use them for your practice. This evening, I want to use the metaphor of going into the darkness as a way of illuminating, so to speak, uh, a number of different aspects of our practice. So I'm going to use the particular time of the winter solstice to look at themes of darkness and light as, as metaphors. And in a way, this is uh, following what we find in so many traditions, as I mentioned last night, all the continents. There are holidays, holy days related to the winter solstice, you know, in China, in Mali, different parts of Africa, among the Aztecs, you know, the Stonehenge in uh, what's now Britain, and so forth. And there's also the, the well, there are also the well-known holidays, such as uh, Christmas, Advent, which is really the waiting in the darkness for the light to come. And there's the holiday of Hanukkah, which is celebrating the fact that at a critical time, actually, in a revolt against the empire, there was only enough oil to last for one day, but it lasted for eight days. We can really see that as also something about the light being there when one thought there was only, only darkness. And so we've been encouraging us to see this time as being a time for us that can be much like it is for the earth, where we go into, in a sense, darkness and stillness and invite renewal. We invite, as it were, the, the light to come. And for many of us today, the first day of the retreat, is this, is this the... Have we been here one day? Let me, we'll do a vote. How many of you think we've been here at least four days? <laughs> okay, here we have, I don't know. I mean, it's getting to be a trend these days that you can just have your opinions uh, <laughs> overcome reality, but I think we won't go there. <laughs> okay. Um, but there have been, on this first day, uh, I know from having met with a number of you in the sessions today, that there have been ups and downs, and particularly challenges of what? How many of you experienced sleepiness at some point today? Look around. How many of you experienced restless mind? Some of you may want to keep your hands up. <laughs> How many of you experienced uh, wondering whether you made a good choice to be here. <laughs> How many of you experienced uh, uh, really looking forward to the meals? <laughs> okay, you get, you get the idea. These are How many of you, you know, experienced some kind of uh, uh, aversion to physical challenges you know, in the body, right? So you get the picture, right? And this is normal. This is normal for the first day. And I'll come back a little bit later and talk about 
some skillful ways to work with those. And we've done that a lot in, in the groups that, that I had this afternoon. So I want to structure the talk by looking into, I think, five main metaphors for uh, seeing our practice as going into the darkness. And the first is going into the darkness and being like the earth, the darkness as stopping and being still. That quality of uh, resting, stopping, or apparently stopping. The second metaphor of darkness is going into the darkness as the difficult, being able to work with difficulties. The third metaphor is going into the darkness as not knowing, really as a quality of mystery and not knowing. The fourth metaphor related to darkness is darkness as being generative and fertile. That is, amazing things coming out of darkness. And the last one is the darkness as luminous. The darkness as opening to light, much as in these uh, cycles of the earth. And so you can see in a way that we're going, I'm going against some of the tendencies to use the dark mostly as something negative. You know, we have a lot of negative metaphors of the dark. And you can, when you listen to that, you can see that actually, in some ways, uh, um, three of the five have a lot of clearly positive elements, or at least they're, they're not using some of the metaphors. Because we often, I think, as we know, use darkness in a negative way, which is connected with the, uh, you know, we, we talk about a dark time, the dark ages. There are ways in which, uh, you know, historically, in so many cultures, people who have darker skin, you know, whether it's in Asia or in the U.S., are seen negatively, and darkness becomes something negative. So we want to be very much alert for that when we use these, which we use these metaphors. And I think that tendency sometimes to not being willing to go really to be with the dark and get attached to light is a very strong tendency in the culture in various ways. And we will see that. This is, this is from uh, the kind of poet and teacher Michael Mead. This was written actually right after 9-11. Those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are encumbrance. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. On most days, America fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that. The rejection of darker people says that. The win-at-any-cost dogma says that, yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light cast an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth darkly knows. And so in a way where the, the talk and I think our practice now can really be guided by the earth having this, at least in the northern hemisphere, having this increasing darkness. So the first metaphor is darkness as stopping and being still, much like the earth is experiencing right now, is going through. So here, as, as I mentioned last night, we, we find ways to stop. We find ways to stop some of the momentum of the last weeks or years. How many of you can feel that momentum? today. Very, very strong, right? And so we, we want in a way to not further that, but we still in many ways experience uh, that momentum. And so there, there are many things that can help. It can help actually to uh, focus on the posture and have some sense of being straight without leaning forward. 
without going forward into the future, we have that way of using the breath as a way to bring the mind to more subtleness, the body, the, the heart, to more subtleness, developing more uh, steadiness of mind. We develop what in Buddhist tradition is called samadhi, that ability to be stably with a focus on one object, for most of us, the breath. We unify, really, the mind and heart and body in a steady awareness. And this is a, this is a kind of stopping, stopping of all the thinking, planning, going to future, going to the past. But we also combine that, uh, that steadiness with a kind of relaxation. In fact, the secret of really being steady is not to try too hard. <laughs> it's interesting. Right? And so we combine a kind of firmness and keeping on returning with relaxing. It's, it's mysterious and it, it can take some time to find that quality of uh, um, being very persistent and firm, but also relaxed, what we, what we can call a kind of relaxed, a relaxed effort. We find also that uh, that quality of stillness really helps that that stopping, just being present, watching the comings and goings of our minds, of our bodies. The, the second aspect of darkness that I want to explore is um, looking at darkness as the difficult. And one of the uh, really glories of our practice is the capacity to be more skillful with what's difficult in our lives. Not to be so fearful of the difficult and not to be so reactive towards the difficult. And part of the learning, and I think it's especially on this first day, is learning how to be sometimes this first day with the unpleasant, with what you don't exactly want, what we don't exactly want, the, the sleepiness, the wanting, the not wanting, the doubt, the restlessness, and so forth. How can we be with these in a skillful way? You know, how can we not be reactive and not go to self-judgment? Oh, I'm a bad meditator. Anyone have that thought come through your mind? Okay. A good meditator is mindful of thinking, I am a bad meditator. <laughs> so we mostly just want to stay with the process and not take our stories too seriously. That's worth repeating. Not taking our stories too seriously. Probably worth repeating more than twice. Yeah. There's a line in a poem by, uh, by the Irish poet Yeats. He said, this is kind of a little bit like the first day. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. In the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. And so we learn gradually how to be with what's unpleasant. You know, and I certainly, when I was first practicing meditation, I thought it was upwards and onwards to bliss, understanding, and wonder. And I didn't think that discomfort and the unpleasant were supposed to be there. And it may be a little bit like this. There's one of my favorite cartoons shows a young meditator sitting and saying, today I shall stay in the present moment. Mm unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. 
And there's a very powerful teaching from, from the historical Buddha, which really gives us the core guidance for being with the difficult. This is probably my favorite teaching. It's one that I give a lot. Uh, and this is called the teaching of the two arrows. And I think this is actually gets right at the core of all the teachings of the Buddha. This is it. And it's actually a very brief teaching. And the, in the text, I th- it was just, it's just like three or four pages. It's a very, very brief teaching. But it's actually, for some of you who know the Four Noble Truths, I think it's actually a more succinct, direct, and clear way of talking about the Four Noble Truths, at least the first two, especially. So here's the teaching. The Buddha was talking with a group of practitioners one day, and he said to them, everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. How is a practitioner different from a non-practitioner? As often happened when the Buddha asked questions, no one could answer. And so he said, okay, I'll answer my own question. (laughs) He did that a lot. And here was his answer. Everyone at times experiences the unpleasant, both practitioners and non-practitioners. And non-practitioners means people who uh, either have never practiced or us when we're not practicing. So we are often non-practitioners. Okay? So everyone experiences at times the unpleasant, uh, both practitioners and non-practitioners. So what does that mean? It means at times we have unpleasant physical sensations. In meditation, when we get sick, when we get injured, at different points in our life, and so forth. At times, we have unpleasant physical sensations. At times, we may also have uh, unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant emotions. We may have difficult encounters with others. We may be treated unfairly or unjustly, and so forth. All those are in a way unpleasant. And the Buddha said that that quality of having unpleasant experiences is like being shot by an arrow. The arrow, uh, we could say the arrow of pain or the arrow of the unpleasant. In that, everyone is the same. And the Buddha himself is said when he was older, he had a bad back. And he had, uh, at times, headaches. So this was for everyone, even people supposedly fully awakened. Okay? So that's not where the difference lies. What the, where the difference lies, and this is the teaching, is in what one does in the presence of the unpleasant. That's where the difference is. That's where we're going to point to. And the teaching is that non-practitioners, again, meaning us when we're not being skillful, the non-practitioner, because of the presence of the first arrow, will tend to shoot a second arrow, will react as if that would help. So what does that look like? I'll, I'll go through each of the kinds of unpleasant experiences that I mentioned. And so, what does that shooting of the second arrow look like as a person with unpleasant physical experiences, unpleasant physical sensations? I may often tense in my body. Did you notice that some today? I will tense physically, I may tense mentally, and I will, um, in a sense, Uh, shoot a second arrow, I will create more discomfort. I've heard it said by people who work with people with chronic pain that for some kinds of chronic pain, 80% of the pain is the reaction 
to the original stimulus and only 20% is actually the original stimulus. So it's no coincidence that the first medical application of mindfulness was in the field of chronic pain, John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, working with people with chronic pain because if they could be with the unpleasant but not create that 80% or up to 80%, much less pain. So we may tense like that, or we may um, mentally make negative comments, or judge ourselves, or whatever, or blame ourselves, or blame someone else, right? If we have physical discomfort. Very clearly the same with unpleasant mental or emotional experiences. You know, I have something difficult happening to me, maybe an interaction with someone else, and um, someone says something which I think is, was mean, and it may have been said uh, for five seconds, and I spend the next two weeks being preoccupied and reacting, blood, blaming, judging, and shooting the second arrow, right? I think we can see that very clearly also emotionally, something Um, you know, I don't know, I get a negative job evaluation and I judge myself for hours and hours and maybe weeks and weeks and I shoot the second arrow. So we can see that personally, we can see that interpersonally, we can see that in terms of conflicts in the world. I, you know, my group receives pain or my country receives pain from this country we attack and turn the other country. A large percentage of the conflicts of the world are groups or nations shooting second arrows at each other. And so how do we work with that? I think in two main ways. One is that we learn, excuse me, we learn how to be with the unpleasant, when it's in the workable range, without reactivity. It's not easy. So we learn how to be with physical discomfort at times and just be present with it. Not what we signed up for here, but that's part of the learning. Probably more obviously beneficial when we can be non-reactive with difficult emotions. I have sadness or anger. Can I just be mindful of that? Can I be present? Can I be in a way non-reactive? This is going back to that teaching of appropriate response because one way of summarizing the whole teachings, I think in a very down-to-earth English way expressed in English, is to say that we learn to be responsive rather than reactive. We learn not to shoot the second arrow. And so this first way we learn to be present at times with the unpleasant. Now, a guideline for meditation, it's very important to know when being with the unpleasant is causing physical harm. We don't want to sit for long periods of time with pain when, it, when there might be an injury or might be something that's damaging. We're not going that way. But there can be some you know, pain that we simply are with for a while and we learn, we learn about the conditioning. We learn about the conditioning to be reactive. And again, it's, it's more obvious with emotions, but the other guideline is that we want to see if the unpleasant is workable, is in the range where we can actually be mindful and centered and balanced rather than simply lost or stuck. One way of talking about this is a very nice model, uh, kind of of learning, which says there are three zones that we learn in. There's the comfort zone, the discomfort zone, and the overwhelm zone, or the panic zone. (laughs) And we don't learn in the panic zone or the overwhelm zone. It's a really important point. Some, you know, I've heard from a lot of people, they sometimes sit with stuff, might be some, even something like trauma, 
and they're vaguely aware that it's happening, but they're actually can't really be very present. That is not skillful to be with. I think that's an important, uh, important guideline for our practice. Know that it's in the workable range. You're fairly centered, you're balanced, you're more, much more with it than not with it. And, and try to have a sense of when it's too much, when it's stuck, and you might have a vague sense, oh yeah, this is happening, but you're not really with it very much. So we learn how to be present with what's unpleasant, and then we learn how to be responsive to a situation without shooting the second arrow. And that's, we could take the next five years studying that together. How to do that in our speech, our communication, how to do that in social action. I like to interpret the nonviolence of people like uh, Dr. King, Dorothy Day, um, Gandhi, as giving exactly this teaching. We have received pain, we will respond firmly but we will not pass on the pain. We will not shoot the second arrow, but we will respond. It's really the same teaching, I think. And so how to be responsive without shooting the second arrow is not easy in our communication, our action, and so forth. But that is uh, really, I think, the direction of our practice. And that's the key, really, to being, uh, being with the difficult. And so with some of the challenging states of our uh, day-to-day, some of what I mentioned, being with restlessness or difficult emotions or wanting or um, wandering mind. It's to, can I be with those and be present to them, notice them, and notice if if I'm shooting the second arrow. Notice if I'm judging myself. Notice if I'm being reactive, and see if I can just be present with those. Be present with restlessness for a while. Be present with sleepiness. It's actually pretty interesting. If you can bring enough mindfulness to sleepiness, sometimes you'll notice yourself sleepy at one moment, and 15 seconds later, wide awake. It's pretty interesting to observe. Sleepiness is kind of like clouds that come and go. And notice the aversion, the self-judgment. Be present with it. What's it like in the body? Can I be with those without shooting the second arrow? And again, it's for many of us, it could be an intention that we work with at the beginning of uh, a session. May I not shoot the second arrow? Right? So when I first heard that teaching, which was probably like 13 years ago, it was electrifying. I said, whoa, this is... This is for me. <laughs> and again, uh, you know, for me, one of the reference points for our practice are, is the kind of the challenging time that our world's in. People who can be skillful with going into difficult or unpleasant thoughts, emotions, situations, and can be skillful, non-reactive, not shoot the second arrow, are deeply, deeply needed. So this training that we're going through is something that we can bring out into the world. It's really important for our world. Just wanted to to say that. I want to mention also, I've been in the last, uh, really the last month or so, also studying a very interesting way of talking about darkness, which is in the uh, term the dark night of the soul. Some of you know that. It, it comes from uh, a Christian mystic, Catholic mystic named uh, uh, Juan de la Cruz, uh, St. John of the Cross, who lived in the latter part of the 16th century. It was actually very interesting background. He was actually of Jewish and Muslim ancestry. But his family was part of the group of Jews who converted in Spain, you know, at the time of the Inquisition. <laughs> it's probably a, it could have been life-saving action. <laughs> and so there's this way in which uh, he points to times in our lives which we sometimes go through something very difficult, where we go into a protracted period of difficulty. You know, sometimes this comes about from uh, 
trauma or loss or something that's been very difficult sometimes. People go into this in relation to having uh, a certain kind of grief for the world and just feeling a certain overwhelm from the pain of the world. That can, that can trigger that sometimes. And people go into this state, which we could call the, the dark night. Um, I've been reading a, a, a very interesting book uh, by uh, a writer who writes on the dark night named uh, Mirabai Starr, who lives in Taos, New Mexico. Does anyone know her work? Some of you do. And she, her daughter, died in an automobile accident when, when her daughter was 14 years old. And that sort of took her into a protracted period of grief that was disorienting and difficult. And she wrote about it like this. With reticence at first and then courage, I dared, I dared to grieve my child. I practiced turning towards a feeling that I did not think I could survive. Abiding with what is, I sat with that. I did this an act, as an act of devotion for my daughter. Saying yes to the mystery, expressing my ongoing love for her. Showing up for a devastating loss was an act of love. It was all I could do. So I'll refer a few more times in looking at the other metaphors for darkness to this dark night of the soul. It's very interesting. And some of us go through periods that can feel like a dark night. Some of us merely have dark weekends (laughs) or dark moments. How many of you have had dark moments like that or kind of disorienting or something that's sparked by whatever, trauma, loss like that? That can happen. So the next one's very related. This is the darkness as not knowing, as a kind of unknowing. And it's important to think that this not knowing quality is not the same as what in Buddhist um, teachings is called ignorance. Ignorance is really more being lost, being deluded, right? And what we're talking about here is being able to be in a stance of unknowing. And it's really the heart of our practice. Can I come to my meditation session, each session, and not know what's going to happen that session and be okay with that? That's what this is pointing to. The darkness as being willing to be with the mysterious, with the unknown. And I know for myself, it's sometimes been helpful at the beginning of sittings to say, can I be with the mystery right here, right for this session, as my intention for the session? And sometimes, you know, I, my own conditioning um, involved, I think, being controlling in some ways, having control be a strategy, right? Many of us have that, right? And so I would sometimes also, in a similar way, say at the beginning of a sitting, I give up control for what's going to happen in this sitting, <laughs> Right? And I found that really um, both liberating and fun because <laughs> right? I didn't know what would happen. It was actually, you know, I mean, some of us just want to say, okay, I know what will happen. You know, we can think it positively. I will have calm and peace and bliss. Okay. <laughs> some of us, some of us may be the opposite. I know what's going to happen. It's going to be just like the last time. It's going to be... <laughs> It's going to be my back or it's going to be those irritating thoughts about that interaction with X, right? Right. Or the X or whatever. And so this quality of unknowing has dimensions of uh, uh, openness and spaciousness and really a certain kind of confidence when you think about it. Really confidence that one can simply be present with whatever's happening. And this is what we're encouraging. The spirit of openness, a kind of unknowing, which could be said to be a way of going into the darkness. And we can really see where that's hard for us. We can see where we do want to control things. I know at points in my own practice, I could see 
that I really wanted to control experience moment to moment. That in a way I was nervous about the future. And it was interesting even, you know, to just sit there and notice, just to be with the unknown was, was um, brought some anxiety, right? And, and at a certain point it surfaced and I could actually study it. It was really, uh, I, maybe I say it now, I, I was going to say it was really interesting, but probably at the time it was only partly interesting, <laughs> right? But it, it can be really fascinating just to see uh, how it's challenging just to be open with whatever's happening. Very simple instructions, aren't they? Hard to manifest. And I think that kind of unknowing can also be there for the unknowing in our lives. I know that many of you are actually now in significant transitions, right? And can I just be present even though my mind is going to this area or that area or this or that? Can I just follow the instructions, be present? One of my strong suggestions, if you are in a kind of transition and your mind is going a lot to, okay, how do I resolve that one? Or how do I resolve this? Very strong suggestion is tell yourself that you'll give yourself some time the last morning of the retreat. Maybe after breakfast, you'll give yourself some time and maybe you'll journal or do some writing, but you'll give yourself some time when you're still pretty present, not thinking about the future. And then I'll give some really high quality attention to what I'm concerned about in terms of the transition And I'm really going to do that, and I'll tell myself that. What that means is that when my mind goes there, from now till that morning, I say, later. That is a skillful way of using the retreat. Part of us wants to just keep on trying to resolve it. It's more skillful to wait to get the benefits of the training. And then there can be, sometimes actually things work out without you doing anything or thinking. Do you know that part of yourself? (laughs) Sometimes things can actually uh, get resolved. Uh, You know, our unconscious intelligence is very smart. (laughs) Okay. In the material on the dark night, there's a very special place for unknowing. And in fact, sometimes people go through a kind of radical unknowing, which is disorienting. You know, in, the, in some of the traditions, this becomes a crisis of faith. The old spiritual practices don't work in the same way. And one is plunged into a kind of unknowing, which is disorienting. Sometimes this is actually encouraged as a form of practice. In some Zen traditions, one pursues the great doubt, where you... You know, one Zen teacher I've studied with, uh, Sun Sanim, Korean Zen teacher, he would say, only don't know. (laughs) Only don't know. Only don't know. And in some traditions, one really just keeps that sense of not knowing and stays with it as a way of opening to something deeper. And this is in the... uh, text of St. John of the Cross, this is very strong. Uh, He says this, this is in Christian language. He says, the soul walks to God through human unknowing. Interesting. And this is is from a poem he wrote about this. I entered into unknowing and I remained there knowing nothing. This place transcends all thought. I had no idea where I was, but when I found myself there without knowing where there was, I suddenly understood sublime things, ineffable things. I will not even try to say what I felt as I let myself down into the arms of unknowing. This embrace transcends all thought. And sometimes when we're in that difficult place where we're disoriented, um, it can be worrisome for us and maybe especially for other people. And again, as we practice more, we become people 
who are able to rest with unknowing. Think of, think of someone who might uh, work in a hospice with someone who is dying and have that capacity just to be present with that person in that entering into that mystery. So there's this very, again, very crucial aspect of being, of, um, being with the darkness as unknowing. A fourth aspect of unknowing is the darkness as generative and fertile. This is much like the sense of the earth that we know it, it seems like nothing's happening, but I'm sure on a biochemical level, there's all sorts of stuff happening in those trees, right? And in the earth, right? It seems like nothing's happening, but something is getting ready for renewal. And there's a way that that can also be the quality of our inner life. We stay with the unknown, we stay with the darkness, and it can be incredibly uh, uh, generative and creative. You know, this is from the poet uh, Rilke. Have patience with everything that remains unlocked in your heart or unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not now look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the questions. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. So we can be with the unknown, the darkness, and often find that it's very creative and generative. And again, I think we don't do this very well in our culture. We don't want to be with the unknown. We don't want to be with um, the difficult very much and so forth. But it can be, it can be very creative. I was hearing, I was hearing a, uh, I heard a talk just a few days ago Maybe some of you heard it. It was it was a it was on uh, it was a PBS radio program, and it was about how chaos and uh, uh, disorder, dryness, not knowing, can often be very generative. And they gave the example of commuters in London, who had you know if you're a commuter you know, and you do the same commuting route every day, everything is down to a T, right? You know what time you leave the house, what time you pick up the cup of coffee, you know what side of the uh, train you like to sit on. Everything is totally worked out. And then the commuter train could not go through a certain station, so everyone taking the usual commute had to do something, had to take a different route. And what they found is that um, a significant percentage of the commuters in the creativity of needing to find a new route actually found a better route. <laughs> and after the line came back, they stayed with the new route. <laughs> I was also, also thinking about this, uh, just that sometimes things are dry, not so satisfactory, and creativity comes out of that. You know, I was thinking some of you you know, probably many of you remember uh, Dr. King's, uh, you know, I Have a Dream speech, 1963. And if you remember that, you may know that um, he was reading from a script. And it was, a, it, was, it was good, you know. He had written it the night before. But he was getting to a point, I think, intuitively he felt, this is a little bit dry. You know, this is a little bit dry. And he was looking at the script, at a certain point, he just sort of paused. At that point, Mahalia Jackson said, tell him about the dream. <laughs> and he put down his script, and he went into his I have a dream, you know? And it just came out of that dryness, not knowing, you know, the creativity. That was, that was unscripted, right? Although he had, you know, in other talks, he had talked about the dream, but not in the same way. So that creativity came out of 
than not knowing. Right? And that's what we, again, we can find that in our practice here. That if we have the courage to stay with the not knowing, staying, stay with the difficult, something quite beautiful can come out of it. Creative, uh, generative, and so forth. You know, I was thinking, uh, my, my father, Simon, I don't know, maybe some of you met him. He, um, he had a number of challenges in, in his life. I won't mention all of them, but some of them, you know, uh, one of them was that um, he was uh, he was blind the last 35 years of his life. Probably he was a, a chemist and he was probably from unsupervised government experiments and he went blind and he was really not bitter. He also developed uh, cancer and was given two years to live, and he lived uh, 27 years. Right? And there was something I thought from the blindness that something opened up in his heart that maybe wouldn't have happened otherwise. Maybe you know people like that who have difficulties and challenges, and something opens up, you know, something beautiful. And um, I remember talking with one person who actually was diagnosed with AIDS and went through a really challenging time, but the, the quality of the heart was very, very powerful. It really opened up tremendously. And then at a certain point, he actually was diagnosed as not having AIDS. Not so clear what happened. And he lost a sense of aliveness. <laughs> and he, he had you know, he had actually had longing for the times when he had the diagnosis because something was brought out. I was, maybe you know situations like that. It's, it's interesting. <clears throat> and so there's a way in which that sense of uh, being with the dark as the difficult, <clears throat> the not known, the, not, uh, the unknown, can really open to something very beautiful <clears throat> and generative and fertile, much like the earth being fertile in the darkness or the darkness of the womb. And so it's something to remember that, uh, that even something that has aspects of chaos, you know, again, aspects of our contemporary social world may be birthing something that is uh, actually positive. Yeah. We can at least be open for that. And then the, the last aspect of darkness I want to talk about is the darkness as luminous. It's actually related to that uh, quality of darkness being generative and, and fertile. This is, uh, this is from another poem by Rilke. One moment your life is a stone in you, and the next a star. <laughs> so things can shift like that. And so we can come to, come to know that that light, that light comes with being with the darkness. Certainly very much there in that theme of the dark night. This is from the Sufi poet Hafiz. I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in the darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. And this is from, this is from uh, the Jewish tradition, uh, a rabbi named Rabbi uh, Cook, who I think lived in, uh, if I remember right, lived in Jerusalem in the first part of the 20th century. Everyone must know and understand that deep within them burns a candle. And no one's candle is identical with the candle of their friend. And there is no human being who has no candle. Each of us needs to know and understand that it is incumbent upon each of us to work to reveal the light of the candle to humanity and to ignite it into a huge blazing torch to enlighten the entire planet. Okay, ready to take that on? <laughs> and so again, just as there can be insight comes, there can be light that comes 
from uh, being with the darkness. That light can come from the difficulty. There's a beautiful story that uh, Rachel Naomi Remen tells about working with a young man who was, I think, in an automobile accident and had both legs amputated in his 20s. And he had been an athlete and he was totally bereft of hope and just totally uh, shattered in a way. And he was asked to draw um, an image of how he was at that time. He drew an image of a vase that was very dark and through it, it had just a crack just this crack. He was, he was like a cracked vase, you know, apparently not useful. And he stayed working with her for a number of years. And he actually, over time, he came to help, especially young people who had had losses. And there was one story of when he was working with a young woman who I think had been a dancer. And she had a a family history of breast cancer and had breast cancer in her 20s. And I think had to have a breast removed. And she was also just very fearful, very much caught in sadness and grief and a kind of paralysis. And he worked with her a lot. And there was one time when he, he he said, let's dance. And she didn't want to dance. And he um, started dancing with his artificial legs. And she just started laughing and said, if you can dance like that, I can dance too. And they later got married. (laughs) (laughs) And later, he went back to Rachel Naomi Remen. And they revisited the original drawing of the vase with the crack. And he said, "Um, it's not complete. I have to finish that drawing. And he said, do you have a a yellow crayon? And he took a yellow crayon. He started having these rays of light coming from the area where the crack was. He drew them and then he explained It's through the crack that the light comes in. So that's a possibility. You know, there's a there's a way that even being with the difficult can be can be very hard. And but yet we stay with it, and something else can come, as as in these stories. Let me see. And I had just. This is, uh, I'll read just a few poems to end. This is again from uh, St. John of the Cross, The Dark Night of the Soul. How well I know the fountain that streams and flows, though it is night. There the eternal fountain is hidden. How well I know where she has her dwelling, though it is night. I long for these living waters hidden in the depths of the night. Whoever arrives in the land of unknowing frees herself of herself. Everything she thought she knew falls away. And her consciousness expands to unfold the whole universe. The higher she ascends, the less she understands. The dark cloud that lights up the night reveals itself as pure mystery. The knower rests in unknowing. This dark light transcends all thought. And so... That in, in that text, the dark night goes into the light. And there's a way that we could say that the, the depths of our being open up. Sometimes we need to stay with the difficulties for that to happen. And that the depths of our being, which in so many traditions is connected with a kind of radiance, very clear in the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha says, our minds and heart are originally radiant and clear, but they get covered over. From one of the contemporary uh, 20th century Thai forest teachers, 
the primal mind that all of us share is radiant and clear by nature, but it gets covered over. In the Tibetan tradition, it's said that there is a self-existing lamp of wisdom that exists in all of us. And so there's this way that as we practice more, sometimes through the darkness, we start accessing that kind of light, that kind of presence. And so you can see in a way we we go into the dark in order to be able to see better. We stop for a while in order later to move. You know, we are with the difficult so that we can eventually have more ease. The being with the unknowing opens up eventually to a kind of knowing. And the being with the darkness is generative, fertile, and opens to light. And again, I think that very crucial to have people who can be with the darkness in all of these ways and know these cycles, very crucial for our times. It's possible that we may be collectively going through a kind of dark night, a collective dark night of the soul. You know, it can, it can look that way. So we need people who know how to be with that. Guess who that is? <laughs> Each of us are training for that, you know, however we, however we manifest it in the world. So I'll end with uh, three poems that are about this uh, process. First is from Rumi. The most popular Ameri- poet in America is a Muslim poet. <laughs> okay? <laughs> okay, here it is. Some nights stay up till dawn, as the moon sometimes does for the sun. Be a full bucket pulled up the dark way of a well, then lifted out into the light. Second poem, Jane Hirschfield, who's a local poet. Three times my life has opened, once into darkness and rain, once into what the body carries at all times within it and starts to remember each time it enters the act of love, once to the fire that holds all. These three were not different. You will recognize what I'm saying or you will not. (laughs) But outside my window, all day a maple has stepped from her leaves like a woman in love with winter, dropping the colored silks. Neither are we different in what we know. There is a door, it opens, then it is closed. But a slip of light stays like a scrap of unreadable paper left on the floor or the one red leaf the snow releases in March. And then last uh, poem by Pablo Neruda from Chile. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. Okay, that's our practice. (laughs) We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So some of the time, as we go on in the retreat, we will turn out all the lights and sit on the rim of the well of darkness. The only lights that stay on are the exit lights. Because of legal restrictions. So again, see what is useful from the talk. And my hope is that it can uh, particularly guide us, again, maybe working 
at the beginning of a sitting with intention and maybe it's to work with, you know, let me open to the mystery of this session or let me not shoot the second arrow or let me um, uh, let go of control or whatever it is or let me be with, uh, be with what is unknown. Let me be with that quality of openness and unknowing just, just to see what resonates with you. And I'll, I'll bring um, what I just mentioned again uh, to the morning instructions tomorrow as well. To, to remind us. Good. So thank you for your kind attention. We have about a little more than uh, 20 minutes for walking meditation. And we'll come back at nine for a short sitting. I think it's not going to be the first, uh, the full uh, 30 minutes because it's um, been a long day. <laughs> but, so we'll probably do a short sitting and then we'll do some chanting. So maybe do... 10 or 15 minutes sitting, and then we'll do chanting. We'll finish early, okay? So can come back, and thanks again, and we'll come back at uh, 9 o'clock.